Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Ferris and Rosie, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you so much for having us. We're excited to be here. Yeah. So I came across both of you by way of our uh, mutual friend, Clay Haybear, who, uh, as I've said a thousand times, is the consistent referral source uh, for fantastic guests. In fact, maybe we should just hire him to you know, find guests for us from this point forward. <laughs> uh, so on that note, uh, can you guys tell us uh, a bit about your story, your journey, your background, and how that has uh, led you to what you guys are up to uh, in the world today? 
Sure. I'll start and Ferris jump in. I hope that as two okay. people in two individual rooms, we won't talk over each other too much. It's a little bit um, tricky not seeing the other person. But I'm from Nashville, Tennessee originally. My dad was in the music industry, and I kind of always thought that I would be in the music industry, except for they didn't really seem to love the internet. And so I switched courses in college and started um, studying new media. And from there, found a job that kind of let me combine the two. I worked for Jay-Z and his entertainment branding company just out of school and got to, um, as the most junior person on the team, do everything from book people's travel to um, pitch some digital ideas and joined the New York Tech Meetup, which led me to a number of different jobs working in digital strategy type positions um, and Ferris did somewhat of the same, though he's from London. And when we met in New York in 2008, we really hit it off and we had been working in the same industry. Uh, we would always bounce each other, ideas off each other, um, just kind of in the background of our regular Before we jobs. Get to that bit, shall I catch myself up yes. to that point? We can start sort of together mutually from there. Um, so I started out in. London. Uh, I had no real sense that getting a job was a good idea. I never really wanted to have a job. Uh, I wasn't in the music industry, neither was my family, but I thought, I sort of suspected I might be a rock star despite not performing or playing music <laughs> for, professionally. I had this sort of vague sense that something would just sort of happen. That didn't happen. And so uh, during the first dot com explosion, I became a management consultant and uh, fleeced many blue chips out of large amounts of money to transform themselves digitally. Um, while incubating a number of companies that then blew up spectacularly. Uh, so after that experience, I became a journalist and worked for Maxim magazine, then went to a record label to try and meet the rock stars that I thought I was going to become, but that didn't work either. So ultimately ended up in advertising, uh, and after about eight years of that in London, moved to America, did about five years of it there in various capacities, did it all creative, strategic, uh, never the same job twice. And then I met Rosie in that period. So yeah, now we can continue. Yes. So um, every year we did a, we tried to do an internet off sort of time for vacation uh, or less internet or internet only for social stuff and less for work stuff. Mm -hmm. And it was in Belize of January, just over New Year's for 2013 when Ferris proposed, except for his proposal was not the typical proposal. It, it, it was on the top of a pyramid in the jungles <laughs> of Belize, which is somewhat unusual perhaps, but you know. I was going I was going to go with the unusual part was that Ferris also proposed in addition to getting married uh, that we should quit our jobs and travel the world, which seemed very exciting, but I was also quite nervous about it. Mm -hmm. Right. I, I had started by an accidentally started a, a digital agency um, under the aegis of a large holding company in New York and uh, it grew relatively rapidly. We had decent revenues. And so I, after five years of sort of working the way New York makes you work, if you have a job, particularly in our industries, which is all the time, uh, I thought maybe I'd sell my equity and um, go and look around at stuff for a bit. So we pretty immediately, I mean, the decision... We always love to travel, and once we had started talking about it, we pretty quickly decided that we were going to do this, and like weeks later, right. put in our notice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the timing, the timing was kind of interesting because there was a hurricane. We were evacuated. I was negotiating my exit. I was um, sorting out visas and green cards, and at the same time, we had part of the thinking behind the opportunity was that we had these speaking engagements in Europe and then in Australia over the course of the year. 
So we wanted to use them to sort of slingshot our way across the world. And, and then obviously we couldn't do that if we had to maintain our existence in New York because it's very expensive. Yeah. And then from there, I mean, once we started traveling, we got like this random odd request um, here and there for help on projects. I mean, everything from Fast Company and Marriott saying, hey, can you write a, a series on the future of travel to a London agency saying, hey, can you help us with this pitch um, and help us understand content marketing. And I mean, we approached most projects with our automatic answer would be no. But if it sounded really interesting, then in something that was manageable remotely, then we would take it on because we figured, you know, if we can do, if we could brainstorm from the beach in Bali and send over some ideas and people are appreciating this, then that can extend our trip in Asia for another few weeks. And um, after that, I guess at the end of our trip, we had expected to see this kind of dip in our savings that we had allocated money for travel, but we had surprisingly broken even somehow. And we decided, okay, we'll, we'll take a break. We'll go on a, a new business development retreat and we'll think about the things that were interesting, fun and profitable. And we'll set some financial goals. And if we meet yeah, them. Yeah. I mean, I, right. Absolutely. Yeah. But I think just before that, we sort of, envisaged settling down somewhere else originally like the plan was to take six months we had these three gigs we had another gig in vegas six months later which would get us back to america and we kind of planned to spend that time picking a place to live based on you know lifestyle weather opportunities so it was always our intention to find another place to live that that just didn't end up happening yeah that's a good point we thought we would just relocate to somewhere cool since we had already sold all of our stuff and gotten rid of things it seemed like a great opportunity, but then we right. realized none yeah, of our like business really centered around a specific city. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we were getting part of the way it was working was get, we're getting asked to either be or work with places all over. So there was there was no obvious gravity to where we were getting work from, which made it confusing. But yeah, that was a year ago. We are we incorporated our business in December of 2013. So we've just finished year one and we met our financial goals. And so and we're having a blast. So we will continue to be itinerant. We've been on the road for like 97 or 98 weeks. So just under 700 days, I think. Wow. Yeah, Yeah. for um, various durations. We've been to, I don't know, 30 or 40 countries in between projects, maybe, but maybe not 30, maybe 30. Um, I don't want to overstate. I don't want to over-egg the travel pudding. But um, but uh, for different periods of time. So, like, we were in London for three months. We did a six-month engagement with somebody actually remotely, mostly in America. So we were in various places for a day, a week, a few weeks up to a few months, depending on the, on the engagement. And also depending on where we wanted to be and that kind of stuff. So that, that helped. Hmm. Yeah. So I guess the, the very first question I have, uh, Rosie, this is for you, is how you know, having grown up with a background where a dad worked in music and also uh, working directly for Jay-Z has really influenced and shaped how you do the work that you do, how you see the world and how it plays itself out in your own forms of creative creative expression, having had that musical background. I mean, honestly, it makes me a little bit more cynical because I felt like the whole thing was a boys club. So I definitely learned to stand my ground and 
working at um, this company, Translation, Jay-Z's entertainment branding company, there were a lot of strong personalities. So in addition to standing your ground, you also had to learn to have very thick skin and negotiate for yourself for pretty much anything. Not just like the basics of salary, but for any sort of ideas to get expenses approved. So I learned very quickly to um, enjoy that and make that fun. And I think that actually, while it's not so much, I guess negotiation is creative. I don't normally think of it as the creative aptitude, but my dad's background was also in legal. Uh, he was a lawyer before being an artist manager. And so I, uh, I think that I'm more, the legal nature has impacted me and my love of negotiation and treating it as a game is more, uh, more, more relevant than the creative bit. Yeah, well, I think that's partially true, love. But I also think, you know, whilst you love music, I think your ambitions have always been cultural. You got into music and advertising similarly to sort of move the pop culture needle. And I think kind of cultural sensibility informs how you how you ideate quite a lot as well. That is true. I really wanted to be an artist. Like I loved pop art, Andy Warhol, Mel Ramos, Roy Lichtenstein. But it turns out that I just my my uh, art. Uh, drawing and painting is not great. I, I was the head of our banner committee when I was in a sorority in college and my, <laughs> my bubble letters are excellent. Um, but beyond that, I was like, oh man, if I can't be an artist and be famous by making beautiful things, maybe I should figure out how to impact the world creatively in another way. And I love that through working with brands, we almost get to have these big corporations pay like a, a creative tithe. That's kind of how I think about what we do sometimes. Hmm. So, so you've mentioned the word branding and you know, when I, when I think about Jay-Z, I think about somebody who's clearly a master at branding and I'm really interested in sort of the lessons in branding and really standing out in the world and doing sort of iconic things that uh, you've brought from that experience that you guys apply to the work that you do today. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that we always talk about is finding your superpower, that thing you're really good at. Because so often when people hire other people to work with them, whether it's a full-time colleague or a freelancer, there's almost always going to be someone who's better than you. There's someone who has more experience, more exp experience in a specific industry, might be cheaper. Um, but people ultimately don't hire based on pieces of paper anymore, at least not to my knowledge. I think everyone hires people they want to work with. So a big part of how we um, kind of built our businesses by blurring that line between personal and professional quite a bit. We go out drinking with our clients. Our Twitter accounts are not profanity free. We send out a newsletter of things that you, 10 things you should be paying attention to on the internet this week and not all of them are always safe for work. And I think people um, ultimately gravitate towards other people they want to hang out with. Ferris, what do you think? Yeah, I would agree with that. I think there is an inherent kind of uh, fungibility, a replaceability of being good at something that's specifically a job, you know? The way I used to put it was something like, yes. being a job is, if, if you have a certain set of skills, if you're hired just for that set of skills or you're being deployed for that set of skills, you're, you're inherently replaceable. Mm-hmm. If you're, if you're very good at being you in a sort of, both in the sense of like the personal brand idea, but also you are, you as a personal brand idea is it's a defensible asset because it's impossible to, to, for anyone else to use it. No one mm -hmm. else can use that kind of construct. So like 
if you're really good at being you and you're employed, especially because you're you, then it's harder to be replaceable, I guess. Hmm. So let's do this. I, I, I want to ask you about uh, two things around this concept of a superpower. One is is digging into where your superpower might lie if you're not sure what it is and how you do that, how you guys discovered yours. And then the other thing I think is really interesting is the way you described your Twitter accounts, the way you described your newsletter. To me, it seems like you guys push edges. And I'm wondering how we find those edges in our own work. I mean, I have an idea of how, to, how I do it in mine, and I'm really interested in how people might find it in theirs. Ferris, do you want to start? Yeah, why don't I take the edges one? You can do superhero everyone because okay. I have thoughts about that. But I think the edges okay. one to me, what? Go on. No, go ahead. <laughs> so um, I think there's a quote, and I forget who it's by. It's, if you don't cross the line, you don't know where the edge is. And partially, it's I think the there's a world shift occurring. Right, this edge thing is. It's what Rosie spoke to, this kind of idea that public and private or like professional and private lives have been historically divided. Like, grown-ups don't act like, you know, serious business dudes act like serious business dudes and maybe they hang out on weekends. But when you see your boss, I remember seeing my old boss at every agency who was a suit-wearing kind of guy come in for a weekend meeting for a pitch or whatever and sort of wearing trainers and, and, and shorts. And it just looked really incongruous. Like, that didn't make sense to me as part of who he was, although clearly he was a more rounded human being. Mm-hmm. I guess that division is blurring, right? And, and I think to me, it was always when working for a larger organization, whenever I found myself self-censoring, that's when I realized where the edge was, right? I felt like that I couldn't say certain things privately, publicly because of uh, where I worked, what I did, who I was talking about, because of a certain demeanor of professionalism. At the same time, I was strongly espousing the idea that creative industries shouldn't be too professional, in some aspects they should be professional in their delivery and their belief in product but if we act like lawyers and bankers then we'll end up being as sort of conservative as lawyers and bankers and i don't think that's necessarily what we add value doing so i guess that's my thought there Hmm. yeah i think that totally makes sense i mean i feel like we have pushed the edges too far occasionally but (laughs) normally people will write back to us and be like i can't believe you actually posted that but then they don't always unsubscribe. So I feel like you, sometimes you mm. can cross the, the line and people will uh, ask for forgiveness yeah. instead of permission. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I agree. But I also think that like the clients that we attract, to your point, Rosie, the clients that we want to work with are the ones that have a set of values that overlap with us to some degree. So, you know, it's probably a good totally. thing. Like not, everybody, not everybody is turned on by our vibe. And I think that's appropriate because if they were, we'd be bland, neutral, mass market propositions, which hopefully we're not. Yeah. Well, we also get so many questions from students. You know, we taught at Miami Ad School when we were in New York in their um, Brooklyn school. And people would ask us, do we need to take down these pictures of us drinking? And my rule was always, I mean, one, you shouldn't put your pictures of yourself doing anything illegal online ever. <laughs> so if it's illegal, yeah. then remove it. If it's not illegal, I mean, drinking... Do you want to work at a place that is going to turn down your employment because they found a picture of you drinking? For me, the answer is definitely no. If you're in finance or a teacher, the answer might be different. Um, but I think we try to be ourselves and uh, allow that to happen naturally, I guess. Um, to the question about the superpower, though, I think these things come naturally as well. I mean, 
one of the things that I feel like was my superpower was something that kept getting reinforced to me from people around me, which was that whenever I saw something new online, I was really excited about sending it out to the team. So I was that annoying person in your office who was sending all agency emails or all office emails or constantly sending team emails about something new, cool that got me excited or that I thought was relevant to our clients. And every time I would leave a job, people would be like, wow, I'm really going to miss uh, your emails. In fact, when I left Saatchi and Saatchi, I'm pretty sure more people said they were going to miss my emails than they specifically said we are going to miss you. (laughs) Um, So I decided to start this newsletter on my own. I thought, well, if people really like it that much, I'm doing the work anyway. I may as well Um, build a mailing list and kind of keep track of emails and send people from other agencies who I had like started adding to BCC for my next job. Um, It's kind of hard to sit down and just think about these things. I think sometimes Mm. it's better to ask your team or your best friend or someone you work alongside and say like, hey, what have you noticed that's slightly different by about me or about the way I work or something you really appreciate? I think it's it's very hard to objectively gauge your strength, own strengths and weaknesses. Um, that said, like, and, and I agree, I think it's an accretive process over time. Like, um, I talk about it like I lived online for a long time. I started blogging in like 06, maybe something like that. So for a long time, I've found a community of people and, and it sort of you begin to sort of feel intuitively how the int- attention flows to certain things you do more than others, right? Mm-hmm. Not in a, at the time. It wasn't about likes and all that nonsense. It was. It's kind of. It was more about people engaging with you, and then so you need to get a sense of what you're good at in that aspect. And I think also, as I said, I've never had the same job more than once. And each time I have a job, I find that there's bits I like and bits I don't like. And so I've been trying to winnow out the bits I don't like very aggressively over the course of the last fifteen years. Each time I take a job, I'm like, I need to be more like this, and then he sort of course correct, you know. Mm-hmm. However, I would have said it. One of my big weak spots, I would never have been able to start a company if not for Rosie because I can't even conceive of the idea of dealing with some of those things. Like, it just, it just, it makes me anxious the idea of kind of negotiating and sorting out corporate structures and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and just dealing with businesses essentially makes me uncomfortable sometimes. So, it, sometimes you'll, you only find your superpower when you find, like, I mean, like a good creative team one of the best ideas advertising ever had was the idea of the creative team mm-hmm. finding partners that balance out your strengths and I think something that we sort of missed not being in traditional creative roles is, is that kind of partnership which is something that I think is very valuable yeah I mean I think you have the best partnership when you each feel like you're getting the better end of the deal and they're definitely mm. areas where like when we start a big project sometimes I have these feelings of self-doubt like why did these companies hire us? Can we really deliver this? And Ferris is a great motivator and also really good at kind of getting us started off on the right track so that then we can collaborate together, Um, which is really, I think that's awesome. I don't think spousal um, or boyfriend-girlfriend partnerships are always the best way to go. It only works when your significant other is truly the best person for the job. I can, if I was trying to fill the role of Ferris and I listed the job description, I could not think of a single better, more qualified person than Ferris. So for us, that does play into it a lot. Mm. Mm. I was also thinking, 
one of the best pieces of advice I got from my dad was don't be good at things that you don't want to do. And I have put that to the test a few times, mainly when I was junior. I worked at a really small company, and I'm really good friends with um, the owner now, but he had asked me to get his coffee one day, which I was really annoyed about, and so I just made his coffee terribly. I ordered the complete wrong thing and brought it to him with a smile on my face, (laughs) and I never got asked again to get him coffee. Same thing when he asked me to get him lunch one time. I got the wrong mayonnaise, the wrong bread, and didn't bring back a Snickers bar. And um, yeah, I never got asked to sandwich runs again. So maybe that's a little extreme. I'm not exactly recommending that you're terrible at something that has to get done. But I do think, um, you know, it's important to, as Ferris had articulated earlier, find the things that you like and focus your efforts around getting better at those things. I do agree with that, actually. I think... So there used to be this construct of paying your dues, like you had to work a certain amount of grunt work in certain kinds of industries, particularly ones that seem nominally cool, although nothing is really that cool when you start working. But anyway, um, things that seem nominally cool from the outside, particularly they pay less and you have to pay, pay your dues, you know. And that kind of made sense when you'd get a job and you'd work your way up and keep it. But that's less and less relevant now, and the idea of keeping your job for any length of time just seems unrealistic, considering the way that corporations restructure and flex in the, you know in relation to the economy and so forth. It's more about, I think, gaining skills. Paying your dues used to be by doing all that grunt work, you learn the skills of the of the thing you're doing, and, and I think it got confused with I had to work really hard as a junior person, so I'm going to abuse you as a junior person to do terrible things for a while until you know. I think that's just not very helpful, frankly. Um, like if you aren't learning, if if you aren't learning new skills and you're being paid poorly, you should leave your job immediately. Mm-hmm. There is no, there's just no reason to keep it anymore. I mean, I was very frightened of this idea. I was very used to having a salary. I had become, I guess, quite successful. Um, and salaries are nice. They're reliable. They're always there. And someone repeated that oft-repeated quote at me from Fred Wilson, I think, but maybe not originally. That the three most, you know, dangerous addictions are a heroin, a carbohydrates, and a salary. Mm-hmm. And my buddy had just started a company and he'd not paid himself for a year. And I was like, how can you do that? It's so scary. And then when you do, it's a lot less scary than you realize, I guess. Um, and that was the thing about it too. I felt that we started to learn new things immediately as soon as we started a company. Like, how does one start a company? <laughs> That's yeah. something I didn't know how to do. You know what I mean? There's a whole set of new skills we started learning, which I suddenly was like, oh, running a business is a different job than helping someone think about a business and all that kind of interesting stuff. Well, and one of the things that I realized too, Ferris, was, and I was just thinking about this the other day actually, is these big businesses, like I used to work at 360i, a digital agency in New York, and I loved it. I loved all of the people I worked with. I loved the agency. I loved the work I was getting to do. But at the end of the day, if you were asking me to do like help out with the scope of work, that to me just seemed the most boring thing. I really did not like being a part of that. And I think it's because you're not really incentivized to like that. Mm-hmm. But it's one of the things that I most enjoy running my own business. But of course, the difference in a project figure, the scope is something that is much closer to my heart now. Whereas in a big business, you kind of have teams to support you. It's less important to you as an individual. And it's I would imagine it's a pretty big challenge trying to motivate your team members to care as much about the business as you do when you're an entrepreneur working yeah, for yourself. I would, I would say it's one of the big issues, which is uh, alignment of incentives. So I was reading a report recently about how, uh, no, it wasn't a report, it was that book you gave me, <laughs> that book about, um, 
high frequency trading and Goldman and whatnot. And the book was sort of saying, no, there are no teams at Goldman because bonuses are given to individuals. And so the only job is to make sure you look the best or whatever. And I think that's one of the big problems, which is this misalignment of incentives towards the individual away from the construct, you know, be it a company, be a team, whatever, you know. When you're an entrepreneur and you own the company, those, are, those incentives are very, very aligned. It's impossible to misalign them in some ways. Yeah. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com slash Wondersuite. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. 
As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So, Ferris, uh, I have a question for you uh, about mm. the time at Maxim and how working as a jur journalist at a magazine uh, that really kind of just took off. I remember when Maxim showed up on my doorstep in college and it just seemed like it exploded almost overnight. Uh, yes. What are the lessons that you've brought from being a journalist at a magazine like that, especially considering what is happening to the world of magazine publishing right now, uh, that have influenced and shaped you as a, as a creative person and have influenced and shaped your work? Right, so um, lots of things, I guess. First of all, I worked for the UK edition of Maxim, which is far less popular than the American <laughs> version. Uh, and it was remained owned by Dennis Publishing, which is a remarkable publishing company. And Felix Dennis is a very interesting man. If you aren't aware of him, he writes poetry, smokes a lot of crack. Yeah. But um, interesting, interesting man, worth looking into. Admitted to killing somebody in an interview once, and then his lawyer rescinded it afterwards because he said he was drunk. A really interesting guy. But not, I did get to meet him, not the point. I guess there's a lot of things I found, which is that... Um, Magazines were all about constraints, first of all. So some of the first things I got to write were um, advertorial copy, which is like, you got some pages, fill them. And then other things you get to write would be like interviews. With, I interviewed a couple of Baywatch um, actresses. One of the first things I learned is that the girl, the women that are so prominently displayed in magazines like Maxim never, ever come to the office. Um, and it's the office is full of kind of sad, lonely men like me, mm -hmm. kind of phoning them up, phoning them up and getting the photos from the photographer. And I'm like, wait a second, where's the upside of this? But you, you, <laughs> learn, to, you learn to realize, you learn to realize that the words you're getting, the words have to fit around the boob, basically, and that that constraint is part of how a magazine comes together, which is interesting because it's kind of like, yeah, it's like you've got this because the boob is there. You're like, okay, I'll write around the boob. Um, so that was interesting. Uh, the idea of sort of endlessly working is interesting. So magazines, you basically work constantly until the issue comes out and you start again. It's like painting that bridge. It's never finished, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and as of lately, things like flat plans, editorial calendars, um, content strategy, all the stuff that magazines historically do are now part of what we do and the industry does, advertising does. So in that instance, it was really advantageous having a small editorial kind of piece of my background because there's been a lot of blurriness in that area. Um, oh, also, and how getting free stuff is the best thing about working in media. I remember that too. <laughs> you said the media lunches especially, right? So media lunches come later. Journalists don't get so many media lunches. They get junkets, which is quite different. Junkets and free stuff for review, which you just get to keep or give to the interns. Um, or you used to be able to 15 years ago. Uh, media lunches come when I was a media planner. I went to a media agency. And media lunches are a construct where because media planners dictate spend or allocate spend to media owners. Media owners have a very large incentive to make friends with them, buy them very expensive lunches, make them drunk, um, <laughs> and do other things. So that was, that was like, yeah, the, the media part of the business had margin. I had this idea for a while that you could talk about non-obvious economic indicators. Um, in a system, whoever's getting taken out for lunch is where the margin is in that business. Wow. Oh, I like that. 
So like in advertising agencies, no one takes out us to lunch. The creatives get taken to lunch when they're at a shoot or mm. on edits because the suite's getting paid huge amounts of money, the production company's getting paid huge amounts of money, so there's a margin there. Um, the rest of the time, producers get a bit of love because that's where the money flows out of that system that they direct. But um, yeah, so whatever, whoever, whoever's, whoever's buying lunch, that's where the margin is. That's my thought. Hmm. So one question around this, and then I want to kind of shift gears. Uh, how do we apply creative constraints to our own work to, to produce something really, in, you know, just to get our best work out of ourselves? How do we leverage constraints? Um, I'll, I'll speak to it briefly if you like, Rosie, and then you can take over. I'm actually reading a book at the moment called A Beautiful to Constraint by Adam Morgan, which is all about this idea. Um, I recommend it highly. But um, he talks about different kinds of constraints, right? He talks about some constraints are beautiful, some are not. Um, and how do you make a constraint beautiful? But I think creative people, in any sense, uh, have always understood that if they don't constrain themselves, they can't do anything. Because like, it's what Hemingway called the white bull, that blank page, the completely empty set of ideas. It's just a really hard thing to focus on. So you need to establish some parameters. I think without some parameters, you don't get anything done. Hmm. I mean, I totally agree. I don't really have anything to add because you summed it up pretty perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's do this. Let's shift gears a little bit. And uh, let's take this in more of a philosophical direction. I mean, you guys made what is sort of a bold, uh, you know, or what my friend AJ Leon calls a brief moment of audacity decision. Uh, you know, deciding right when you're about to get married that to hell with it, we're going to quit our jobs and go and travel the world. I want to talk about a couple of different things. One is what enables you to do that, what it is internally, what keeps people from doing that. And then also talk about the idea that you know, in some level, you know, I think we've also taken this narrative a bit too far because people feel inadequate almost because of the internet, because they're not doing what everybody mm -hmm. else is doing that looks so epic. So I want to hit it from all three perspectives. Okay. Do you want to start um, with you or shall I? Well, I want to first just uh, bring back a little bit of smack talk into the conversation, which <laughs> is that we did meet AJ Leon once and he um, is friends with Clay and Julia as well. And uh -huh. we he was judging a chili cook-off. And I just want to make sure that everyone is aware that while Clay Bear is an incredibly smart man when it comes to crowdfunding and a really good cook, it was Ferris and I that were crowned the victorious chili cook-off champion. <laughs> Okay, back to uh, back to audacity. No, Ferris, you start. I've been talking a lot. Okay, that's fine. Um, Everyone think, so likes you your British what, accent. What, what allows you to do it? What prevents people from doing it? And is people are people sort of fetishizing it? The three areas, I guess. So, what yeah. allowed us to do it? Um, one, I didn't want to do it on my. I'd sort of been harboring a desire to travel for some time, maybe since I first went traveling, I guess, in nineteen ninety nine. So, I always thought when I finished six months in India, I'd go make some money and go back traveling again. It seemed like a good lifestyle and it just never really happened. So I've been thinking about it for some time. Um, I'd saved quite a lot of money. That was part of it. I mean, ha you have to have savings to make it work, right? You can be done with very limited funds, but without savings, it becomes slightly impossible, although it can be done, I think. But also without Rosie, I just didn't see the appeal in doing it on my own. I didn't necessarily want to go. So being in a partnership made it easier. Why is it hard? Because inertia is powerful. Doing stuff is difficult. Doing the thing you did yesterday again today is much easier than doing anything else. And you do need support as well. Like we got rid of most of our stuff, but you know, we put some stuff into storage at Rosie's parents and mum's house. My parents hold some stuff in the UK. So there is, we have a support system in place that also, and friends all over the world, fortunately, which is kind of convenient, which um, makes that doable. But it's, it's scary. The first, the, the weeks of de decompiling five years of our life, dismantling it, selling it, 
closing up shop, saying goodbye to our friends that we'd spent all this time making in, in New York and leaving was, it's hard. It's a scary thought. The first bit is really euphoric. And then it's like, crikey, what are we doing? Yeah. Um, I remember when we were packing up our apartment, I had this just paralysis almost of fear, just thinking how we, we've put these plans in place. We've already put in our notice and we've rented a U-Haul and we had flown mm-hmm. my sister to New York to help us pack up stuff for her spring break. But I was just like, how are we going to do everything? And this was even before yeah. the business. It's just, it is, it can be really overwhelming. So it totally it is. And one of the things that I say a lot because I'm like Douglas Adams and inherently lazy is that without deadlines, nothing happens. Mm-hmm. Because we set ourselves deadlines, suddenly a lot of stuff had to happen very quickly around immigration and where we're going to live and moving and what we're going to do with our stuff. And, how do I, and what do you do with books, which turns out you can sell for pennies on the dollar, but what are you going to do with DVDs? It turns out nobody wants DVDs because they're artifacts of a previous media existence. They, don't, they have no function anymore in people's lives. They just take up space. So we couldn't even give away the DVDs. We had no, a party we had where we to- had... We had to pay yeah, we someone, a, Ferris. Yeah, yeah, we had a party at the end and tried to give people away all the rest of our stuff we hadn't sold, and people just didn't <laughs> want those things. Like, what is this? What are these plastic? This is stupid. I hate them. We ended up paying uh, someone on TaskRabbit to come, and we paid him like 50 bucks to come pick up like three boxes of DVDs that he said he was taking to his church. Be. But we didn't care yeah. where they went. We were like, as long as they're out of our, our uh, area. Yeah. yeah. And then I think the thing is, so... Uh, this whole this techno nomad tech nomad idea that we sort of fell fell into it, I, I, I take your point it's kind of like everybody thinks everybody's doing it but from our experience nobody is doing it really like it's hard yeah and it's kind of this weird dream of like dropping it all and going to be a yoga hippie and don't get me wrong we did get into yoga because we were traveling and stuff that's what does happen but mm-hmm. I, I just think it's it's not as simple as it could be. And it's kind of doing it. Like, so for example, if you want the transnational wealthy where you can just sort of wander around and do this stuff, it's actually really hard to understand, you know, to plan your life out, to get paid in different countries, to work out taxes and all this stuff. So it, it comes with a lot of pains in the ass, basically. But the benefits to us outweigh the costs and the uncertainty built into it, I guess. So it's like, yeah. it's, a, it's very glamorous when you see it on Facebook because you only put the glamorous bits on Facebook as per right. everybody's life, you know? Yeah, I mean, I th- I think to your point, like, it is really difficult. You have to want to do it. But with every life choice, you have pros and cons. Whether you're quitting a job, buying a house, moving apartments, breaking up with yeah. a boyfriend or girlfriend, and you make a choice with the best information you have ahead of you, uh, uh, in front of you right at the moment. And as soon as mm-hmm. the cons outweigh the pros, you reevaluate. And for us, we haven't had the cons outweigh the pros yet if they do i'm sure someday we will be antsy to stay in a place for a bit longer and when that happens yeah. we'll make a change in our life that allows us to do that um, and i think that's the thing like we both uh, whether through design or happenstance both managed to sort of not take on those big commitments that that stick you somewhere i guess it's mortgages and kids are the big ones really aren't they let's be real mortgages and, and kids pets. and stop, stop pets and jobs you can't leave yeah. uh, an ailing family perhaps there's, there's a number of reasons no doubt but we just didn't have those things so in the absence of them it's a lot easier to yeah to but in terms of what in terms of what allows you to do it a lot of things have changed to make some bits easier so yes taxes yes. are a pain in the ass we were just on a conference call today about them and figuring them out there's nothing in place you know people are like let's you should go talk to kpmg or some massive company and we're like oh, i don't know if that's the right bet but on the other yeah, hand yeah go on well on the other hand there are 
services like um, Worldwide 101, which is where we have employed a virtual assistant, and she's yeah. amazing. And she helps us with all of our logistics from, um, you know, booking travel to I – was, I love this example just because it was so – much of a time saver and annoyance saver for me, changing my last name on all of my frequent flyer accounts when I got married and coming up with a password that fits every single airline and unique password requirements and is something that Ferris and I can remember. So, you know, it used to be like you would have to employ different people, find an office space. Now you can hire people virtually, freelance people, freelance staff, freelance support are more common across a variety of industries. There are places like um, co-working spaces and pretty much any major city. And if there's not a co-working space, there's a coffee shop that has really fast Wi-Fi. <laughs> that, that's um, totally true. I, mean, I, think, I think that's huge. You're right. It's hugely important. Like it, the internet thing is obviously massively important, right? So internet access is difficult to come by weirdly in, in some parts of America, particularly hotels, but it's ubiquitous in Asia in almost every possible place. And so Decent Wi-Fi, even in, well, in my, Myanmar was tricky, but there's some Wi-Fi there, enables this. because So corporations, the reason they've sort of existed is to mitigate transaction costs. It, it's expensive to build a team, find, sorry, find a team, build a team, package a team, deliver a product, and then decompile it each time you do it. Hollywood does it, but almost nothing else does. So the transaction costs, a lot of them are mitigated for us because the internet allows us to be you know, public in our life and therefore create marketing around our ideas and our thinking. The internet and our experiences allow us to connect with people who are interested in doing work on a freelance basis and find clients. So a lot of the sort of marketing costs, delivery costs, team building costs are mitigated to some degree by having been working for a long time so you know people and having the internet. Um, and even Airbnb and Uber, I mean, those didn't yeah, exist totally. a while ago. We, we, I mean, for any place that we're staying for longer than a week, be and we almost never rent cars and try and instead find a place that's within walking distance of things we need and use Ubers. 100%. Yeah, we totally that's that's you're absolutely right. Like, so, um, access and, um, yeah, the, the Ubers, the, the sort of that, that kind of aspect of the economy, which is sort of more plug and play rental, is very convenient for us. Hmm. I think one of the things no, that's overheads are, overheads are bad. Yeah, sorry, go on. Sorry. No, I was going to say one of the things that's hard, which is totally, um, I don't know, it's like one of these weird situations where everyone chooses to some extent the career that they go into and you kind of, you know, I remember in the agency world, there would be long days and you would go out to drink and kind of complain amongst your team or amongst friends about your job and how it was hard to some extent. And sometimes I feel like when you... um, are an entrepreneur when you travel a lot you lose the uh, not ability but like people will give you shit if you complain like just because you post pictures of beautiful sunsets they're like assume they assume that you are spending your days at the beach whereas it's like okay well we were in this beautiful place and we actually got up at 9 a.m and did yoga for half an hour and then we worked from 10 a.m. until 4 p.m. and then we planned an adventure in the afternoon. So I I think sometimes it feels a little lonely in that aspect because it is really tough to just again it's a choice we made. I totally get it, but like to book hotels and flights, you're constantly organizing logistics or managing someone else to organize logistics, and people just have no sympathy for you. So you. <laughs> 
It's super um, true, actually. I, and you're right. It's like, so what's that Louis C.K. bit, which is like, oh, you hate your job? Oh, there's a support group for that. It's called The Pub, and they meet every night after work. <laughs> yeah. And, and so but no one has sympathy for, like, it's quite hard trying to start a company while living on the road while planning a wedding. Yeah. Um, because you're living the dream. And by living the dream, you remove yourself from the possibility of difficulty, even though it comes with loads of challenges, like, you know, being sick in some random beach getting food poisoning or some horrible disease in some random beach in the middle of Cambodia and going, okay, um, what do we do now? And having a project due. And having, yeah, deliverables due in in that week. And you're like, oh, okay. You can't take a sick day because that doesn't make any sense. Um, But your time is very flexible, so you have time to do chores and errands in a way that perhaps you never did if you needed to. Anyway, yeah, it's weird. You know, interestingly enough, the part of all of that that, is so intriguing to me is, is dealing with that sort of voice of fear and uncertainty uh, when you decide to do something that you know comes with no guarantees. And I don't mm-hmm. know that you get to quiet down the voice because, I mean, there are days when I wake up and think, what the hell am I doing? Uh, yeah. And yet somehow I still manage to keep going and some days I don't even know why. I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on how you deal with that voice. Well, we, we, there's first, partially, first of all, there's two of us. So when I freak out, Rosie tends to be calm and Rosie freaks out. I tend to be calm just as a virtue of being in a relationship. You get used to managing that balance, you know? So that definitely helps. I mean, I still think I definitely have self doubt a lot. Um, I try to, I used to keep a folder on my email of just like really nice emails people would send me or great feedback I would have. And it was just called happy time. And then I would just go look back in that folder anytime I felt like sad or felt like I was not um, worthy of some kind of praise. And I would just like look through and be reminded, okay, wait, I can do this. People do think I'm good at my job. People do like me. Um, I also think that for us having some sort of um, routine and can help. Like we, I feel like it was much scarier before we were able to figure out something that was routine across the board. Mm -hmm. So for us, Mm -hmm. it was yoga and it's not that we do, we try to do yoga in all of these cities we go to is partially just like, we're having trouble sleeping. And someone had said, you guys should have a routine. And we said, routines don't make sense for us. Our whole life is anti-routine, but you can find these little things like when we were in London, it was my like cup of PG tips and warm milk every morning. And that was something that just kind of brought some serenity to me and let me think through my day. Um, but I think you're right. It doesn't really go away. And if it does go away, then I would be a little bit worried too, because I think to produce great work, you have to have a little bit of that fear and still you have to yeah, be constantly so, questioning. Yeah. I think, I think you're right. I think, fear or like there's some desire to please it's it's more pronounced to me the desire to please my clients now than it was when I work for a big agency where the responsibility and the credit is diffuse mm-hmm. um I think also there's a difference I mean so I'm both you know I'm relatively arrogant British um <laughs> and and you know like all people afflicted by imposter syndrome you know anybody that's been vaguely successful in their careers assuming like well should I be is this really fair you know but I also think that the fear of doing big things big differences we took it really step by step so if you think about it the the the, the big jump of leaving was like well this is a short-term thing we're going to go on vacation for a long time that'd be great so you sort of focus on the good bit and then you go we'll make the decision later and then the work began to find us 
and work of a non-obvious nature, which was interesting. It's like, so people go, well, we kind of know you do these things, but we have this thing we wanted to think about. Could you? And that was lucky too, because the, 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 the latent demand, I guess, for what we, we could do together began to manifest in a way that was very casual. So somebody asked me recently, you know, when should I quit my job and go full into my startup? And I was like, well, it depends what you mean by startup. People use that word to apply to us, but I don't think it's right necessarily because I don't think we want to build a massive product company that, you know, is Facebook or whatever. But so um, if you are already being paid to do the thing you think your company's going to do, I'd probably advise you to not... um, quit your job straight away, you know, don't quit your day job until you're being paid to do something else and um, have a lot of money in savings on the assumption that you'll probably not have regular income for a while and all that kind of stuff. So you put these things in place over time and you get more and more confident, I guess. I also think goals, like written down goals can really help because that, I mean, we use um, like different kind of project management software and sometimes we just have, you know, these various checklists for individual products and that, sometimes quiets the fear if I can see all the things that need to be done broken down into smaller steps it makes everything hmm. feel more manageable I, I I agree with that that's how you organize reality that's how you manage uncertainty is by creating structures and, and, and lists of, of very you know of nested things that have to be achieved I think that's great and I think I, I don't manage reality and complexity in the same exact way <laughs> that's um, true but but it's it's finding different ways to be comfortable with uncertainty which is tricky hmm. So yeah. I want to go back to something that uh, but you, you, you mentioned earlier in, your conversa- in the conversation in some form or another. You talked about the work that you guys do being close to your heart. And mm. I think this will just make a perfect way to start wrapping things up. How do you guys define you know, what is close to your heart and what the ethos of what you guys do is? Ferris? Um, yeah, I can start with that. So... <laughs> One of the things that I observed repeatedly whilst working with advertising agencies and I had many conversations about was the fact that ad agencies find it very hard to differentiate their services because, which is hilarious since they sell differentiation services. But there's like, um, what are your beliefs? And it's like often agencies and brands, big companies now have to find their beliefs retroactively. They've made products, products for a long time and they're looking for their beliefs. So the ethos was very clear from the very beginning. We've had a set of beliefs that we've sort of been building over the five years a sort of body of thinking that informs how we think about strategy, how we think about communications, how we think about ideas, and how we work with people. So those things are kind of already there. Um, in terms of the work that we do, we don't accept all projects that we get offered, um, and they have to come with a kind of different characteristic. So the, the work has to be exciting to us. So, and not to be sort of douchey about it, it's not like we you know we can pick and choose everything. But within certain parameters, you can. If the work is going to make me sad or you know render us unhappy that probably is bad unless it's for loads of money in which case you get over it but if the work is going to be let's say less profitable but get us to a country we've not been to then we'll upweight that in our decision we're like well i don't particularly that's not really very profitable you know a couple of weeks but at the same time we get to go to this country that seems cool so it's kind of a, a more holistic way to approach uh, what clients can offer us i guess as part of it yeah i would definitely say things that are close to our heart are projects that allow us to travel to places that we yeah, haven't been exactly. to um, I also think sometimes projects where you don't always know the end answer, or I guess you kind of alluded to this when you said something that's a little bit different, um, mm-hmm. that when you're one of the things that we found annoying about the day jobs were, um, you know, having to essentially do the same job function over and over again, and the projects would be slightly different, but you'd be doing a lot of the same thing. 
And, you know, we've had people tell us, you need to come up with these products and packages and just sell these three things at these three price points. But the truth is for us to be living our dream and for us to, you know, put in all this work and make it be worth it for us, that's just not something that is our dream. Our dream is not to do the same thing. It is to do all sorts of different things. And yes, that means every single time we write a different scope or a different contract, but it also means that we get to work on projects that we wouldn't otherwise get to projects where we don't always have the answer, but we feel like we have the right pieces to get to the answer or know the right people to connect them to find the right answer. Um, yeah, hundred percent. I think I think that's totally true, and I think we sort of have this in between consulting and creative positioning right now, and I think that's partially because my first job as a management consultant, I, I asked my boss an immediate question. I said, "I'm 21 years old. I have a degree from a relatively you know, nice place, and I'm." understood as being relatively smart that seems fair but I know nothing about businesses I've never worked in a business I've never learned about businesses we have, have purely academic degrees in the UK mostly for the good universities so th- there's no vocational training um, how is it that you think I'm going to consult for these companies that already do what they need help with and they said that isn't the, the job the job isn't knowing how their company works the job is being smart and applying your thinking to their problems because and this is when you discover that Google exists right before Google it was perhaps more difficult without experience to consult. Um, you have to learn the McKinsey way. You learn whichever kind of school book of strategy that Harvard Business School sells you. And I think now you just go, well, I'm a knowledge worker. I'm an idea machine to some degree, but I, I, we are, you know, we take stimulus and problems, we condense them into thinking, and then we sort of produce um, recommendations, strategies, ideas. And that's possible without knowing everything about how you're going to apply thinking to the problem but by being open-minded and going we'll apply thinking to the problem i think that's kind of yeah that's kind of the difference Hmm. and we don't sell particular products so that's the thing yeah we sell thinking about stuff i guess also like taking it back to people i think people are often what get us excited we got to work with um this brand fresh pet and they're one of the fastest growing pet foods out there and they gently cook their um meats and veggies so that they're not like little kibble bits. It's actually refrigerated dog food. And we didn't, neither of us had dogs. I had a dog in college, but we've always considered ourselves not really pet people, maybe more so now, but it doesn't suit our lifestyle. It's not something that we've ever like yearned for. But when Mm. we met the people over at Fresh Pet, I mean, they're doing so much amazing work. We got to chat with them and they really got, they really got me excited about it. I was like, I'm recommending this to every single person. So sometimes it's not just about the product or the job, but instead about the people that you get to work with, which should make sense. I mean, it's a natural thought, but you don't always get to have that choice when you're um, not making the choices, I guess. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, this has been amazing uh, and really, really insightful. Uh, so I want to close with one final question, uh, which, Rosie, if you heard the interview with Clay, you, you know how this is going to end. Uh, what do you guys think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Ferris, what do you think? Okay, well, depends what you mean by unmistakable, I guess, but that's the philosopher in me. Um, I guess uh, th- there's a number of qualities that I guess um, – stand out and it's that standing out thing which is important right it's not just peacocking but it's kind of being aligned very strongly i've been reading this book recently about dissonance 
right? It's Rosie's book that she hasn't read it yet, and it's about dissonance and how cognitive dissonance causes a lot of self-justification behaviors. And there was a lot of dissonance I found kind of in sometimes my, between my professional life and my um, personal life. Or, and la- when that dissonance removed itself or, or became, le- became lessened, it, it was, I think, that, that, that sort of confidence comes out uh, and you feel... Um, Maybe I'm maybe unmistakable, but I also think it's partially about having, in my case, dreads, and in Rosie's case, pink hair. I was going to say the hair, too. Oh, uh, well, um, you know I me. Mean. It's branding, isn't it? Better branding can't hurt. I think, I mean, I do think that you can build your own brand to some extent, but working with what you have and figuring out those things that rise to the top, whether it's something more in your strategic thinking or whether it's something in your pink hair or dreads, um, just finding that unique element that and, and building it up and making it a part of your brand helps to make you unmistakable. Yeah, yeah, yeah I agree. Just being really good at being you is probably a good skill to hone. And I think Kurt Cobain said, wanting to be someone else is a waste of the person you are, um, which is probably fair enough. Well, I think that makes a uh, perfect way to wrap up our conversation. Uh, I can't thank you guys enough for uh, taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with our listeners here at The Unmistakable Creative. This has been awesome. Thank you so much for having us. And I can't wait to be on the other end asking the questions and getting to pick your brain one of these days. Yeah. And uh, for those of you listening, we will wrap the show with that. If you like what you heard, the greatest compliment you could give us is to share the show with a friend and let people know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.